The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Brian D. Estelle. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray during these few minutes this morning you would open up our eyes so that we might see Christ anew and that we might understand your scriptures uh, better. As we begin a series looking at the patriarchs, help us to understand their faith better and their pilgrimage. And Lord, we do beseech you once again that you would grant us that proper posture before your word, namely to have reverence and humility for we know no one can know truth uh, without that, uh, especially from your Holy Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so for this morning's meditation, we'll focus on what uh, the Jews call the Akedah, famous passage, the binding of uh, Isaac from Akkad. And uh, this is a meditation, not a sermon. Uh, None of these in chapel or sermons, they're just meditations, uh, but hopefully we can find something edifying to uh, say when we look at this. I'm going to read a few verses since this is such a familiar uh, chapter of scripture and we have uh, limits on our time. Uh, let me read a few verses even though I'll be appealing to the whole chapter. Um, Look at verse 9, for example. It begins, the Akedah does, that now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And then if you look at verse 9 and following, it says, then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. <clears throat> um, I suppose those of you who know me well uh, know that I like G.K. Chesterton because he's so quotable and for other reasons. And uh, some of you have probably heard this quote from me, but it bears repeating. Um, he says, the real trouble with this world of ours is not that it is an unreasonable world. cookies in Hebrew 4 this afternoon. The real trouble with this world of ours is not that it is an unreasonable world, nor even that it is a reasonable one. The commonest kind of trouble is that it is reasonable, but not quite. Life is not an illogicality, yet it is a trap for logicians. Life is not an illogicality, but it is a trap for logicians. Uh, now, what, Abraham, or what, Abraham, what Chesterton says there, maybe Abraham said something like that after his experience, but um, 
What uh, Chesterton says here um, very much gets us into Abraham's plight in this uh, story uh, because I'm going to claim uh, that Abraham's primary problem is a conflict in his mind between true propositions, two uh, pro propositions. But before we do that, I want to uh, situate this story in the context of the wider Abrahamic narrative, especially chapter 12, and show you in really fun literary fashion uh, how these two stories are bound together in chapter 12. It, at the beginning of Abraham's journey, as you know, and then also this chapter, chapter 22, the famous Akedah passage. Um, consider some of the following facts. What you actually get are five motifs which bind these chapters together. I'll go over them quickly because it's not really my main point, but I want you to understand uh, that these two chapters are bound together. In chapter 12, 1, the Lord said to Abraham, get up and go. And there, there's an imperative followed uh, by a preposition with a suffix on it that sounds like this, lech lecha, get up and go. From your native land and from your father's house to that land I will show you. And interestingly, in chapter 22, 1, you get the same phrase. Sometime afterwards, God put Abraham to the test and he said to Abraham, um, said to him, Abraham, and he answered, here I am. And then he said, take your son, your favorite son Isaac, whom you love, and go. And interestingly enough, uses that same phrase, lech lecha. And then, in the entire rest of the Hebrew Bible, it's never used again. So that's significant to demonstrate that these authors are trying to um, bind these passages together and to show us that uh, they uh, do belong together. Uh, take your son, your favored one, the one whom you love. Notice also the phenomenal suffixes there. Uh, the second motif is God's blessing of Abraham. We get that in chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, you'll remember where God promises to Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. And it is, isn't it interesting? We get almost the exact same phrase in 22:18, And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay, again, more evidence that these two are to be thought of as bound together. No pun intended. Um, fulfillment of the command by Abraham. In each narrative, you have a formula that was actually common in Ugaritic at this time. It was a travel formula. It goes like this, and A took B and C and D, or the chattels of B and the chattels of C and the chattels of D, and then he went away only using certain verbs to such and such a place. And that's exactly what you get in both chapter 12 and following, and then also in chapter 22. Uh, fourthly, a further revelation of God to Abraham. So in the passages, you have further manifestations of God in the narrative as the narrative clips along. Think of chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I will assign this land to your offspring. In chapter 22, we get two theophanies there. He says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and your descendants shall seize the gates of their enemies. So you get the same thing happening. And then you also have, fifthly and finally, the building of the altar in both places. In chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will assign this land to your offspring, and then he built an altar there to the Lord. And then, of course, in 22.9, uh, in preparation 
for the um, proposed sacrifice of the son, he says they arrived at the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there, and he laid out the wood, he bound his son Isaac, and he laid uh, him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, what's the problem here? Is this a moral uh, problem merely? Okay, so now I want to focus on the problem before we look to the solution and talk about that because a lot of people get Abraham's quote-unquote problem exactly wrong. Now, any father in the room who was commanded to go and kill their son uh, would uh, surely feel the angst of that potential uh, problem. Um, but I want to talk about how some people understand this allegedly as a, as a classical example of what's called the divine command theory. Um, so that theory states that the command issues from, um, not from a God whose moral character we can count on, uh, but one whose goodness is wholly inscrutable. Um, Alistair uh, McIntyre, a famous Scottish philosopher of the last generation, wrote one of the most influential uh, philosophical books on moral virtue and political philosophy in the last century, uh, erroneously thought Calvin held to such a view of uh, divine command theory, and especially with respect to this passage. So he, he writes uh, the following, and I quote from McIntyre, Calvin too presents a God of whose goodness we cannot judge and whose commandments we cannot interpret as designed to bring us to the telos, his word, the end, to which our own desires point. As with Luther, so with Calvin, we have to hope for grace that we may be justified and forgiven for our inability to obey the arbitrary fiats of a cosmic despot." Close quote. Calvin was not a divine command theorist, however, and what mattered most to him uh, was not some kind of moral crisis uh, that the command in chapter two places him under. Rather, Calvin and many more recent philosophers said the real crisis for Abraham was a moral one in a certain sense um, that the loss of his son in obedience to such a command would, and I'm quoting Paul Helm, be the failure of the divine promise to him that through Isaac, he would be the father of many nations. Look, this is, Abraham's problem, and Calvin did not exalt philosophy over exegesis, so he understood that this was Abraham's problem. Abraham's problem is he has two propositions floating around in his head that he both knows uh, they're true, and yet he can't get them to cohere because the solution to that inconchinity, to that uh, uh, incoherence, hasn't been provided yet. One, Abraham knows that God has promised that through the progeny, children of Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? God told him that. I'm going to bless your seed and Isaac's seed and all the nations, Genesis 12, 3 and following, will be blessed through you. And God also knows that God has commanded him to sacrifice Isaac, the child of blessing, through whom blessing will come. Those are two so far, irreconcilable propositions for Calvin. So as Paul Helm states, and I read, quote, the crisis for Abraham is not primarily this moral crisis, nor is it purely a logical crisis, it's an epistemic crisis. In this audience, I can use that word 
I wouldn't use it on Sunday morning. Um, it's an epistemic, it's a problem of knowledge, okay? So only more information will solve it, Paul Helms says. The climax of the story gives him what he needs to reconcile one and two. He knows that God has said he will bless all the nations through Isaac, and yet God has just commanded him to kill Isaac. <clears throat> Abraham knows there must be a resolution, but he does not know what or when this will be. So the crisis created by the command to sacrifice Isaac uh, is not actually, as Calvin sees it, a conflict between religion and morality, nor even between a command and a norm. It's between the knowledge of an earlier divine promise and a later divine command, and it creates this tension. Okay? So you see the particular nature of Abraham's test in the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Can he trust God to provide further information and have faith that God is going to provide further information with regards to resolving this potential conflict? The point is um, whether he will trust his son to God, believe the promise, and also believe that God will provide further information with regards to the resolution of this. God must provide a way out. So uh, his faith is seen in obeying the command, uh, despite the fact that uh, these so far are two irreconcilable truths or propositions before him. And what I want to do here is help you understand <laughs> the sublime and profound and robust faith that Abraham has. I mean, Think about him going forward and obeying the command despite the promise that's been made. Calvin actually says, his mind must of necessity have been severely crushed, violently agitated when the command and the promise of God were conflicting within him. He had come to the conclusion that the God with whom he knew he had to do could not be his adversary Although he did not immediately discover how the contradiction might be removed, he nevertheless, by hope, reconciled the command with the promise because being indubitably persuaded that God was faithful, he left the unknown issue to divine providence. And this is a great line. Meanwhile, as with closed eyes, he goes whither he is directed. Abraham's faith resides essentially in this. He knows, or believes, better yet, that God will reconcile these two things with which he's faced. And so he goes forward. This is not a text that's meant to unravel uh, the divine command theory of ethics. Rather, the problem for Abraham simply stated is ignorance at this point. He doesn't have the further information he needs, but he still steps out in faith as if with eyes closed. He obeys his suzerain and his sovereign and goes whither he is directed. So what's the solution? God provides the added information, right? God provides a ram, or one text says the ram, uh, in the thicket. And suddenly, uh, Abraham has coherence and provision. 
so here comes the resolution to the promise. The immediate solution is that God provided the sacrifice immediately. So essentially this passage of scripture is not intended to unravel uh, this divine command theory. Uh, rather it's meant to unravel uh, Abraham's problem of ignorance as he's called uh, previously to thrust the knife into his son, his only beloved son, whom he loves. So sure enough, God provides added information, but I still have a few minutes, and I don't want Julius Kim to have to take you all into class and finish the meditation. Um, God does more, doesn't he? At the crucial moment, the Lord provides the one ram, or the ram, and so there comes the immediate resolution, and the immediate solution is that God provided the sacrifice. But have you ever thought, what did Abraham see on that day in the sacrifice? Our own Lord looked back upon Abraham's life, you'll remember in John 8:56, and said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Never underestimate the power of typology uh, to communicate truth uh, to these saints of old before the coming of the Messiah, before the coming of the Messiah in flesh. That's a confessional claim, chapter seven and chapter eight. So he went forth with closed eyes and with veiled eyes. But when you think about what did Abraham see that day? He saw one of, if not the most poignant, powerful example of substitutionary atonement in shadowy form. With crystal clarity here as is perhaps communicated nowhere as strongly in the Hebrew Bible and, 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 and the extra information, the extra provision to bless Abraham's progeny and not uh, kill his son. But then the next question you ought to ask, because we don't want to just focus on Abraham's faith, or else I wouldn't be serving you well, even though I think that's very edifying to think about the power of Abraham's faith, and especially the source for that power of faith. Um, but have you ever asked yourself, what difference is there between Abraham's situation and the situation with Jesus, for example, as the ultimate sacrifice? Um, for the antitype must supersede the type. Uh, the type is fulfilled in the greater antitype. Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? Isaiah 53, 7, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so did he not open his mouth. He knew that he had to be made a curse. He knew that he had to be born of a woman. He knew that he had to be born under the law so that he could fulfill two results namely to ransom you from your sin and also to make you sons and daughters of God. But he still prayed, Father, take this cup of wrath if it be possible. And yet he set his jaw like flint to accomplish his purpose. Jesus, your Lord, knew full well the cost of the sacrifice. There was no other substitute. For Abraham, there was another. For Jesus, there was no other. In complete and unwavering obedience, he followed his father's will. Abraham's faith in God, entrusting his only son, his favored one, the one whom he loved, led to the fulfilling of the promise. 
Jesus' obedience led to a fulfillment of the promise, a promise ultimately obtained by embracing the curse and becoming cursed. As Ian Duguid said, his teacher, he that is Jesus could not look up to heaven and see, uh, and but see the knife in his father's hand uh, poised above him. Isaac looked up and saw his father's hand, but his father's hand was stayed. Not so Christ. As Klaus Skilder says, think, think about what happened when he was on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. So just as our forefathers were tortured in the Colosseum and they looked out and they saw that Roman guard lifting the cages so that those animals could tear at their flesh and kill them. The Son of God, how much more so, um, looked and truly was abandoned because he had to be the wrath bearer and the Lamb of God and watch the knife be lowered. He was the Lamb of God. No wonder the Apostle Paul would write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.